0: The information provided on this podcast does not, and is not intended to, constitute legal advice. Instead, all information, content, and materials available are for general informational purposes only. Welcome to Rights Here, Rights Now, the podcast about disability, advocacy, and activism. I'm your advocate host, Virginia Ferris. And I am your advocate guest host, Suzanne Herbst. Every two weeks, we dig into relevant issues, current events, and avenues for self-advocacy.
1: Because someone has to.
0: And it might as well be us.
1: This podcast is produced by the Disability Law Center of Virginia, the Commonwealth's Protection and Advocacy Agency for Disability Rights. Find out more at dlcv.org.
0: So Suzanne, thank you so much for joining me in the studio today. Thank you. I am so excited to be here. Well, we have you here, uh, guest hosting it up with us, um, because in a shocking turn of events, our uh, guest expert for this episode is our usual advocate co-host, Ms. Ren Fazuski. <gasps> That's right. We're going to be talking about kind of a serious topic today. We're going to be talking about the um, TDO and ECO process, which we will get into what all of that means in just a minute. Um, but just wanted to put out sort of a little uh, a soft content warning. We're not going to get into anything um, really upsetting today. But you know, if you uh, have some sensitivities about hearing about the involuntary commitment process. This may not be the episode for you and that is fine. And you can join us again next week, but, um, in the meantime, let's check out disability in the news.
2: Last week, the U S Senate unanimously approved a bill known as the lifespan respite care reauthorization act of 2019. This bill authorizes $50 million over the next five years for community based respite care services across the country. The federal government has provided grants to 37 states along with Washington DC through the Respite Care Program to streamline delivery of services, coordinate resources, and offer trainings to respite providers and family caregivers. There are an estimated 45 million family caregivers across the United States and they provide billions of uncompensated care every year. Respite care is essential to caregivers as it helps to reduce mental and physical health and stress issues caregivers often face. The House of Representatives passed a similar bill last summer, and the two bills are currently being reconciled before legislation moves on to the President. Find out more at www.disabilityscoop.com. This has been Disability in the News.
0: Ren.
3: Hello. <laughs> Thank you. For joining us in the studio, but in a slightly different chair than usual. It is a different chair. I'm a little uncomfortable with it um, because I'm so used to now my place. But uh, <laughs> I do know things too, so this will be exciting for me. Is it? Does it feel weird to have somebody else in your
1: chair? You're just staring at me with jealousy. Yeah, it's, it's, it, there's a little bit of judgment there. But okay.
3: you're doing great, Suzanne. Thank honestly. you. <laughs>
0: I need that encouragement. So the TDO and ECO process is a lot of letters
3: it is a lot of letters (laughs) in a specific order it yeah there's we'll get down to the letters first i think because this is sort of how it's most commonly known uh the entire process is the civil commitment process Mm -hmm. but when you sort of talk to people who are connected to it tdo and eco are the ones that come up in terms of how they describe it so uh let's first talk about uh the tdo that is the temporary detention order this is a legal order in which someone is uh committed for immediate hospitalization for a 72-hour period on a voluntary i'm sorry an involuntary basis yeah that's kind of the key to this particular process that we're
0: going to be talking about today is that it's sort of the involuntary commitment process.
3: And the ECO is the Emergency Custody Order. This is an order um, by a magistrate in which uh, police are able to put somebody into custody in order to get them evaluated for the involuntary commitment process. So um, those are the letters (laughs) that most people uh, know about uh, as far as the, the process. So other than what
0: it means, in a very broad sense, like what's the nitty gritty, let's start chronologically. What starts this process?
3: To begin this process in any way, there has to be some sort of psychiatric crisis going on. An individual has to be either dealing with really intense mental health symptoms that are either placing them at harm's risk for hurting themselves or others, or making it very difficult for them to take care of themselves. Mm-hmm. The psychiatric crisis is is the key here. If someone is having, you know, mental health symptoms but they're still able to go to work yeah. or they're still able to feed themselves or they're just, you know, they're struggling but they're not in imminent danger, then you should they should not yeah. have be connected right. to this process whatsoever. As far as like typical lay people, let's say you have a friend that is really struggling and they start saying that they're going to hurt themselves and you want to help them. This is a very typical way for the initiation of this process is by calling 911. Mm -hmm. So you call 911 and you say, I have a friend. I'm really worried about their safety. Um, And the best way to do this is to recommend specifically for a crisis intervention trained officer or CIT. Um, These are officers that are specifically trained to respond to mental health crisis and to have Mm -hmm. de-escalation techniques to work with people who are struggling with mental health or even developmental disabilities and things of that nature.
0: Now, important question about that. Do every city and county
3: have uh, cit trained officers? They do not. I believe Richmond and some of the bigger counties have really large populations of officers that have been trained yeah but once you kind of get further out from that then that's where you see less and less and less and that is something that sort of the state is working on but it's yeah. not available everywhere yet yeah. um but it's always a good thing to ask in case you don't know
0: although somebody from southwest virginia i feel the need to point out that i believe in the state of virginia it started in blacksburg um the cit program oh. so um, represent
3: yeah <laughs> shout out to my Southwest Virginia folks so what so once you've called 911 and an officer's on the scene then that officer can make the determination if somebody needs to be evaluated right away
0: now if it's a situation where maybe somebody has a history with law enforcement where it like wouldn't necessarily be the best idea to l- call law enforcement is there anyone else that you know a loved one could call if they were concerned
3: you can always call obviously if you if you're well aware of uh your this individual's record Um, Specifically, if they already have a psychiatrist or they're already connected to services, Mm -hmm. it's always great to see if you can't work with that individual to get them connected to voluntary stuff. So, you know, you can contact uh, their psychiatrist. You can also call the community services board's crisis line. Every CSB has a crisis line, and you can call them. They may already recommend, they might be the ones who get in contact with the police. They might say, hey, you can drive them down straight to us. I just mentioned the police officer route as that's kind of one of the common ways that this process is initiated. Yeah, it's,
0: you know, if we're being honest, it's probably how most people sort of begin their interaction with uh, this process.
3: As far as the ECO is concerned, again, an officer can come on the scene and say, hey, this person really needs to be evaluated, and that person may refuse or may not be able to consent. Let's say if they're really, really sick and they're just not able to make those kinds of decisions in that moment, Mm -hmm. that officer uh, would issue what is called a paperless ECO. That means there's no actual written piece of paper right there with the magistrate signature saying you can put this person in custody. But the police have that authority to say, I think this person needs to be taken for evaluation. uh, an individual can call for an ECO directly to the magistrate this and get a paper ECO That's not nearly as typical because obviously this would be in a crisis situation. Yeah. So but that is an avenue that has occurred. Yeah.
1: And what exactly? you're saying magistrate. So for those for those of us who aren't as familiar with that term, what is a magistrate?
3: So magistrate is as a local independent judicial officer. Uh, they make decisions um, in hearings for like minor crime stuff mm-hmm. as well as for uh, civil commitment cases. So they're the ones who write off on emergency custody orders. They're the ones who write off on temporary detention orders and eventually, you know, that kind of moves people through that process. So they're the ones who actually stamp their signature on the piece of paper saying, this is what's going to happen. So um, so once an ECO is in place, uh, this initiates an eight hour window. So in this eight hours, a person has to be evaluated by a CSB um, and at the end of that eight hours, uh, the ECO expires. They can mm-hmm. no longer be in custody right. because of, like, civil rights and stuff. Yep. You Always good to have. You can't just get, keep people in custody for a really long time. In Virginia, uh, right now it's eight hours. It was previously six, but in 2014, I want to say. they When you say in custody,
1: what does that mean? Are we talking in custody, like, for police
3: What it means is that you're not arrested for a crime, but that the police are able to keep you um, within their, again, custody within their, within their, sort of like police are responsible for you for that period of time, right? So they're responsible for you. It can mean that you are handcuffed. Yeah. Um, that's something that uh, mental health professionals are having a conversation with law enforcement about. Yeah, because obviously that's very traumatizing. Typically, in my experience, prior to being an advocate, I have seen handcuffs in transportation. So when a uh, officer pl- uh, has an ECO and you're putting an individual in the co- in a police car, then sometimes you see handcuffs in place until you get to either the emergency room yeah. or the csb um like crisis center there is a space in the eco as well as the TDA order that a magistrate can authorize the use of alternative transportation mm-hmm. But right now it's kind of used far and few between. Um, there's not really a readily accessible service for that. Right. It's usually uh, like a family member or somebody like that who would who would be involved in that. know yeah. so, right.
0: you, you don't have an explicit right not to be handcuffed during this process, but um, you know if you're somebody who is, experiencing this if you're somebody who is being ECO'd or being TDO'd and you're interfacing with the police if there is something um, like in your history if you have a trauma history that means it's gonna be really detrimental for you if it's gonna be a really bad idea to put you in handcuffs Mm -hmm. like let them know that they're not trying to make things worse
3: Right, and again, this is part of this ongoing conversation, Virginia, about c i t trained officers, yeah. and because they're much more aware about these nuances. there's also specifically for people with developmental disabilities, the reach program is um is trying to be utilized during these mm-hmm. these 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 points of time because using reach can also help mitigate um or can help explain what's going on with the individual, like why they might be acting a certain way, which it won't change the fact that the person's going to be evaluated, but can provide some additional right. support and
0: um just for our listeners who may not have that background just to be totally clear reach is the statewide um crisis response system for people with intellectual and developmental
3: disabilities uh, for an emergency custody order uh, a police officer or a magistrate can't just say boom slap you with one just because i feel like it you do have to meet certain criteria. The person has to have a mental illness or there has to be a substantial likelihood that as the result of that mental illness um, that they would cause serious physical harm to themselves or others or suffer serious harm due to the lack of capacity to protect yourself from harm. Um, The person also is in need of hospitalization or treatment Mm -hmm and the person is unwilling to volunteer or incapable of volunteering for treatment. All of those things have to be there in order for um, this order to be granted. Yeah. Um, So again, just because you have a mental illness doesn't mean you're going to meet this criteria. Um, You might be really sick, but then you might voluntarily want to go to a hospital Mm -hmm. or to an outpatient treatment center Mm -hmm. and then then all of this isn't necessary it has to all these things have to be in place in order for this order to be granted
0: i mean it's also worth saying that if somebody is you know displaying um dangerous behaviors or self-harming behaviors and they don't necessarily have like a diagnosis on the books of a mental illness that doesn't mean that they cannot um, right be
3: subject to an ECO right if if there is um, evidence to believe that this is something that's going on you know with a, with a mental health condition or you know some sort of developmental disability something of that nature um, again that that understanding is what informs sort of that decision um, so let's talk about... The TDO, is it time? The TDO. TDO, well, yeah, you've told us all about the, the ECOs.
1: ECO. Let's, get, let's get the TDO party started. Well,
3: right before the TDO, once an ECO is granted, you are taken to be evaluated. Okay. This is what mm-hmm. determines whether the TDO happens. Um, so you are evaluated by um, a representative from the Community Services Board. This evaluation is typically called a pre-screening. And this person called a pre-screener that's the the language you'll really hear Uh, what they do is that they evaluate whether you are in need of treatment and whether that treatment needs to be involuntary Mm -hmm. okay Um, there are certain kind of the same conditions that an ECO needs are the same conditions that a TDO order needs to meet okay again that person needs to have some sort of mental health condition or the likelihood of a mental health condition. Because of this condition, there is a risk of them harming themselves or others or that they're going to suffer harm due to an inability to care for themselves. Something that we'll see with that a lot in the community would be like if someone, let's say, is really suffering from depression Mm -hmm. and is, you know, not... Eating, not drinking, really unable to get out of bed, things like that. So, are they at immediate risk of harming themselves? Probably not. But you're seeing that they could suffer injury because they're not able to care for themselves. Yeah. That's kind of the scenario that we're talking about. And again, they need to be—they need to need—they need to need, <laughs> they need, to need um, hospitalization or treatment, yeah. and they're unwilling to volunteer or incapable of volunteering. So again, sometimes people are either really sick, or let's say due to a developmental disability, struggle with um, understanding their, you know, understanding these kinds of decisions. Like particularly if someone has a guardian, something like that, mm-hmm. if they're not able to make that decision voluntarily, a TDO would be considered. A pre-screener determines all sorts of stuff during this evaluation. Obviously, they talk to the person and figure out what's happening. They talk to the police. They see if they can't get a hold of family members or whoever was there. Maybe there's previous records at the CSB. Mm-hmm. Maybe they already have access to that person's psychiatrist because they go to the CSB. So they look at all that sort of information. And at the end of it, they say, they either say, nope, I think this person does not need to be involuntarily committed. Um, at that point, they would... The civil commitment process would end in terms of again involuntarily committing somebody, mm-hmm. but a pre-screener would still work with that person to try to connect them to resources, to try to get them into an outpatient program, or yeah. maybe um, there are uh, crisis programs. The one I'm thinking of right now is through RBHA; they have a crisis unit. It's a completely voluntary basis, but it provides more intensive care. If you or a loved one are in crisis and can
0: work it out um, to go through a voluntary system, whether that's inpatient hospitalization or outpatient services, so much of the time the outcomes are just better for that person in terms of their recovery, if they feel like they have agency over this process, if they feel like it's their choice. Um, to go into treatment to work with that, so
3: I just you know
0: just wanted to put that out into the universe for our no, listeners. it's it's
3: very true. Um, people who uh, have who seek treatment voluntarily are much more invested yeah. in the treatment mm-hmm. than people who, who are involuntarily committed, and obviously you know the people who are making that decision feel like they have to make that decision to keep people safe, but um, certainly all the voluntary services and all the preventative services are always a much better option.
1: And are we going to have some resources for people who might have a loved one in that kind of situation that would be up on our
3: website? Well, we definitely have mental health resources already up on our website, mm-hmm. and we'll make sure to have some extra quick yeah. guides or extra extra phone numbers. Um, that way people can yeah. get connected to those things.
0: Yeah, you know, Virginia is a pretty big state. It's culturally different it's logistically different it's geographically distant and so your best bet probably if you or a loved one is in crisis again um, is to contact your local community services board because they are going to be the most likely to know what local programs are available um, and to be able to answer sort of like location specific stuff
1: And if you don't know, if you are somebody who says, community services board, I don't know what that is, I don't know where mine is, how would they find that kind of information?
0: Um, if you have internet access, you can always just Google community services board and then your City or County.
3: So after the evaluation, so after the pre-screening, again, the pre-screener can say that, no, we're not going to involuntary commit this person, but... Obviously, they can also say, we're going to pursue involuntary commitment, mm-hmm. a.k.a. the TDO. Uh-huh. So uh, in this case, they, they finish their evaluation, and they send that off to the magistrate. And the magistrate then is the person who actually makes the order, because mm-hmm. obviously, they are the judicial officer, and they yeah. need that fancy law stamp. Once that order is in place, it is the pre-screener's responsibility to find a bed. Mm -hmm. And they have a whole list of all the available beds at all the private and state facilities. And they call. It's a Mm -hmm. very boring process. But (laughs) they call everybody and essentially say, hey, I have Joe. And Joe needs a bed. And you go through the whole list and figure out where a bed is available. And once you find that bed, you inform the magistrate. And Mm -hmm. then they go.
1: So you're talking about calling for available beds. What if there aren't any available beds?
3: So that's a really good question. Um, this we're going to talk about the bed of last resort legislation, and the reason this came about was in 2014, um, uh, Senator Cradit's son was going through the involuntary commitment process when he was released due to a lack of available beds. Unfortunately, that this ended with his suicide. Um, so the Virginia legislature enacted. What is called the bed of last resort um, you'll also hear it as just the deeds legislation and this law requires that state mental hospitals accept patients who are under uh, temporary detention orders if no bed can be found in a private facility within that eight hours after an eco is initiated so what we'll see very typically is that even with individuals who are brought to the emergency room without an ECO, that when a TDO is put into place, an ECO is put into place as well. So once that ECO reaches that eight hour limit, that that person is automatically sent to a state psychiatric facility. This would be your central states, your eastern states, your Northern Virginia mental health institutes, things of that nature. So that was specifically put into place for that not to happen, that no matter what happens, you will be sent to a facility and receive care. Mm
0: So um, that sort of brings us to the end of the TDO itself. What happens when, you know, a TDO expires? Because that's, you know, three, it's three business days. It is effectively three business days. Right. here 72 hours, is three business days. Um, so when that runs out, does a person just get to leave?
3: not quite uh sometimes maybe so again once the pre-screening ends the tdo is initiated they find you a bed then the uh police take you to the facility which the bed is found and uh that 72 hours is what they consider you know stabilization so you're there to get immediate treatment um and get all that at that before the end of that 72 hour window or if it's on a holiday or weekend, like it might be the next business day. But within that 72-hour window, you have what is called a commitment hearing. And this is a court process involving a special justice. They hear evidence from the pre-screener. They hear evidence from the uh, hospital that you are in. They receive evidence from all sorts of places. And they consider that evidence to determine whether that person needs to continue receiving treatment uh, involuntarily specifically there can be several outcomes of this but that is that is the the specific outcome of which they're determining whether that is necessary at this hearing uh, you have the right to appear at the hearing and to present your own case and to hear all the evidence that is presented you also will be um, uh, receive a court-appointed attorney. They are there to represent your best interests and your wishes specifically. Mm-hmm. So, even if people, be- you know, the 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 court and the pre-screener and what have you, believe that it is in your best interests to remain in the hospital this court appointed attorney is there to represent your interests. Yeah. So if you say I do not want to be hospitalized, it is their responsibility to say this person should not be hospitalized because of X,YZ.
0: Yeah. Now court with court appointed attorneys, um, you know I know that that is how it's supposed to work the reality is we get enough calls to know that like your mileage may vary when it comes to court appointed attorneys do you have to use the
3: attorney that's been appointed to you or can you get your own lawyer you can get your own lawyer that is your right to get your own uh, private attorney but it's important to know that regardless of your ability to pay for a private attorney you will be getting one during this process Another part of the tdo ECO civil commitment process is that the CSB providing the pre-screening is responsible for contacting um, or making a reasonable attempt to contact a family member, uh, your health care agent, your guardian, mm-hmm. you know someone who helps you manage these types of these things to contact them to let them know this process is happening yeah. Um, that goes the same with the commitment hearing, that they are responsible for informing these people when the commitment hearing is, that they can uh, participate in the commitment hearing um, because again, like these, particularly like a healthcare agent, someone who uh, makes you know decisions on your behalf if you have a advanced directive, they need to be notified of this process so they can make those decisions mm-hmm. on your behalf.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know that some people will wonder about it. Is the hospital contacting these folks who, you know, may be family members that you want nothing to do with? Is that a
3: HIPAA violation? So it's the CSB that's contacting these folks, and the CSB, as part of the pre-screening process, should be gathering this information from you. So this should be information that you have provided through this process. They can't just go into their random hat of names and just get one out. They're not calling your fourth grade math teacher. No. They're, okay, Mrs. Stone, be <laughs>
0: work on my behalf. It's re, it's <laughs> really more of a um, like emergency
3: contact that you've
0: provided exactly exactly
3: okay that that's less creepy, right? And again, like you know, some of these folks have already had contact with the CSB or received services from the CSB. So, you know, if they're involved in this process to see a speech, you'd be like, okay, well, they have, you know, they live with their mother and their mother always brings them to their appointments. Let me call their mom. Mm-hmm. Or this is their guardian's name. I should contact their guardian. Yeah. Or we already have a copy of their advanced directive. Let me figure out who's on that. Yeah. So. And speaking of advanced directives, I would be
0: um, just not myself if I didn't use this as an opportunity to mention that if you have an advanced directive and you're going through, Um, this involuntary commitment process civil commitment process um, that that uh, can inform things like um, who you want to have called without them having to ask you Mm -hmm. it can have that information out there it can have you know here's who's making decisions if I can't make it for myself it can even have um, you know if We'll go through this in an advanced directives episode later, but there's even language that you can put in there about if I'm really, really sick and saying that I don't consent to be hospitalized, um, then I, as a well person writing this advanced directive, am telling you that it is okay to voluntarily hospitalize me. So there's, you know, an advanced directive may... um, Make this process look a little bit different, uh, mm-hmm. as might certain power of attorney documents, that kind of thing. Uh, well, it's kind of just, like we
3: touched on in the beginning. Like, while th- this process is important to have, it, it should be a last resort process. Yeah. Like, the idea yeah. is like, we can try to do, again, advanced directives and voluntary admissions and voluntary treatment and all that stuff first, try to prevent from this process from occurring.
1: So, we talked about what happens at the commitment hearing. What are the possible outcomes?
3: Okay. So, um, obviously the petition could be dismissed and you'd be released. You're just gone. You just do what you need to do out in the community. Um, uh, You also can have mandatory outpatient treatment ordered. Uh, This would be for up to 90 days. Um, You can be allowed to voluntarily remain in the hospital if you are capable of making that decision. Um, And, of course, you can be involuntarily committed. So those tend to be the different outcomes that you can see, mm-hmm. and part of that process and working with your your attorney or working with, you know, the individuals that you want there to be present at the hearing is uh, figuring out what's the best option for you and and making that case.
0: So, are there other issues with the civil commitment process that we need to be aware of that we haven't already gone over?
3: Um well, of course, you know part of what we've talked about um, as part of DLCV as an agency is that we've talked a lot about the extraordinary barriers list. Mm-hmm. These are folks that are at state psychiatric facilities who have been determined ready for discharge um, for at least two weeks and have not yet been discharged um, Any time somebody is involuntarily committed and the court is then making decisions about how long you are there, you know your discharge, you know, we want you to be as discharged as quickly as possible. Sometimes that doesn't happen. Yeah. And that's something that, again, we as an agency are working towards. But that's one of the risks yeah. and one of the reasons right. why we want to see if we can't put all of these services before the involuntary commitment process occurs. Because you might be there and you might be there for a lot longer than you were hoping. Yeah. And that can be really disruptive, obviously, to your life, to your job, to your living situation everything like that.
0: And while DLCB doesn't necessarily help people who are, um, who have complaints about the involuntary commitment process or sort of in the process of going through that, we don't necessarily have the capability to help because that's like an active court process. You know, we are able to help people who are a little bit stuck in the system and may need um, help uh, getting
3: discharged. Mm-hmm. So that's a good reason to call DLCD. right and, and something to know about this process, the, the ECO doesn't have an appeal because it's this different kind of police custody thing, um, but as far as the TDO and the civil commitment itself, those are things you can appeal. When you are awarded your court-appointed attorney or hire an attorney, that person can appeal the TDO Itself, or also appeal your civil commitment if you are involuntarily committed. Right. So those are things that are appealable. Um, one of the other issues, again, with with this process is we really need to speak about it very plainly. In that you are losing your right to make these decisions. Right. When you are involuntarily committed, you cannot make the decision whether to pursue your own treatment because the court has made the decision that you are right. going to be in this treatment. Um, now that doesn't mean you don't get to make decisions
0: about the treatment you're receiving and that doesn't mean that you don't get to participate in your treatment but right. it's not your choice whether to you're at in the, the hospital, hospital or not
3: um, and part of that means that um, in the state of Virginia if you have been a uh, TDO'd and involuntarily committed that you lose the right to uh, possess firearms Mm -hmm. Um, so that is something to be aware of again with with this loss of rights is that that is a that is something that you will lose the right to do I think it's a misdemeanor I'm not a lawyer don't quote me but I'm pretty sure it's considered a misdemeanor in the state so thank you
0: so much that that was a little bit of a weird note to end on but (laughs) uh...
3: again I think what's what's this this process is really confusing and there's a lot of twists and turns in it that's why it's really hard to give sort of a straightforward a to b to c process because that's mm-hmm. just not how it works you know because you know you could jump start the process here yeah. you can jump start it there you can get an eco here so you know it it's I would love it to be straightforward. I'm pretty sure the whole state would love it to be straightforward. (laughs) That would be great. It just isn't. So hopefully this is at least given sort of a bare-bones description of sort of the big pieces of it. Um, and um as an agency
0: uh we have been working on putting together sort of a map of the uh civil commitment process to go up on our website so people can see sort of what it looks like they can click through they can see you know what laws apply to each section but you know honestly when i was putting that together i thought it was going to look sort of like a decision tree just like everything branches out into two very neat segments no it looks it looks like an at
3: sign somehow it's like, very loop-de-loop it, yeah it's just all over the place yeah so you know um again hopefully this information is very clear so our listeners can use it uh Suzanne you did a great job as me today like like the best me I could ever meet <laughs> oh my
1: gosh that's all I've ever wanted to hear is that my impersonation of someone else <laughs> especially a coworker? is as accurate as possible. Excellent. Excellent. But thank you so much for breaking all of that really complex information down into something that is a little bit more understandable, even though, as we talked about, the process itself can be very complicated. You're so welcome. I hope
0: this helps. <laughs> now a DLCV highlight.
2: Kate is a 21-year-old student who has big dreams. When she and her mother first spoke to DLCV, her career goal was to work at Chuck E. Cheese. She loves children and animals. She wants to work at a job where she can work with both. Kate was not receiving appropriate pre-job skills training, pre-employment transition services or pre-ETS at school. And unfortunately her only training was following the janitor throughout the school. When mom called DLCV, she was frustrated that the VR agencies did not see Kate as a priority. DLCV was able to step in, advocate for appropriate vocational rehabilitation and pre-employment transition services and encourage Kate to speak up for herself. By the time we closed Kate's case, she had gone to three different trial work experiences and jobs that she was interested in.
0: So, thank you again to Ren um, for coming in and talking to us about that very complicated uh, TDO ECO process. Um, you know, as with so many of our topics, it's one of those that's a little hard to, um, to wrap your head around, but it's really important for to know about because they just
1: there's no handbook for this there's not but i think ren did a good job at giving us the most basic of handbooks that we can use to start navigating that process
0: Yes, and thank you again to you suzanne for stepping in courageously uh to ren's advocate co-host shoes and asking the most pertinent of questions
1: thank you it's a good way to spend an afternoon hanging out in a podcast studio with you guys so Happy to be here.
0: And thank you all for listening to this episode of Rights Here, Rights Now, brought to you by the Disability Law Center of Virginia. We are available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a review.
1: And if you need assistance or want more information about DLCV and what we do, visit us online at dlcv.org.
0: Follow us on Twitter at Disability Law VA and share us with your friends. Until next time, who knows when that
1: will be for me, but I'll think of you all fondly in the meantime. I'm your guest
0: advocate host, Suzanne Herbst. And I'm your advocate co-host, Virginia Ferris. And this has been
3: Rights right Here,
0: Rights right Now. now.